You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we're talking about comparisons. Saying hello this week to Oberlindock, Switzerland. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Yeah, we've got a lot of listeners from Switzerland this week. So I've never heard of Oberlindock, but that's what came up on uh, on the SoundCloud uh, site. So um, maybe we can get uh, uh, an email response from whoever's been... You know, um, just burning through episodes, binge listening to, uh, to all our episodes from, from that part of Switzerland. Yeah, I wonder who that is, too. I wonder if it's not Kurt. It might, maybe it's Kurt. Um, okay. or, or some other Swiss examiner. But, uh, yes, uh, well, uh, Bienvenue uh, Suisse or uh, Hallo uh, Schweiz. All right, so uh, Glenn, you've been up to anything over the past couple of weeks? We we did a we haven't talked recently because we did a two parter and uh, and then I got busy and missed a week. But um, you know it kind of happens every once in a while on the, on the episodes. So what what you been up to? Well, I've just I've been doing a bunch of crazy travel training or <laughs> some private private stuff, you know, casework stuff. Yeah, and it's just been uh, it's it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Plus, at my work, I had. Uh, supervisor training it's the core training so it's all about uh, managing employee leave and benefits and what not to say during an interview and affirmative (laughs) action issues and all the wonderful stuff that comes with being a supervisor i'm serious i thought about eating a bullet several several times (laughs) but uh, how are you doing what's uh what have you been up to well um did a little birthday thing with the family this evening I went to it was kind of Phoenix's version of of Central Park. It's called Encanto Park, and uh, I had some food there. But um, really interested in this thing that we're doing in a couple of weeks now called the the Great um, Arizona Treasure Hunt. Uh, you can go to aztreasurehunt.org, and you, you kind of get teams together. And on the day that the treasure hunt is, you do all these clues out through the desert. But it's all like. I mean, it's it's sometimes like you know puzzles and solving that, but it's also a bunch of like engineering stuff because this yeah. thing's been around for sixty five years. Uh, wow. It was started from with some engineers from Motorola. They kind of just kept it going, and now it's this like self perpetuating thing where there's no one like really in charge. It's just if your team wins, then you get onto the committee for the next three years to plan the next th- three years worth of treasure hunts. So kind of the goal is to come in second. Yeah, if you go to the website, you can kind of see some of the clues and stuff. It's just stuff to kind of just study up on before the uh, the actual treasure hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just this isn't kind of an insane thing that's been going on since like 1951, and it's just it's not run by like any group of people or any organization. It's not like sponsored by, by anything. It's just a bunch of crazies and engineers going out and making up puzzles and stuff. Um, so it's, I'll have it's to give run an, run by the people. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to give an update after after we go through it, but uh, uh, definitely looking forward to it. Uh, do you normally participate? This is the first year. Never heard of it before. And then uh, my my best friend's older brother is uh, has been doing it for like I don't know seven eight years now. So he was looking for new team members and was like, oh yeah, racer, you know a bunch of stuff. Here, let's uh, get you on the team. And uh, Oh, okay, sure. And after he explained it, I was like, yeah, I'm totally down for that. 
So now next year, I think I want to do it again and get a whole like forensic team together. Yeah, um, uh, uh, cool. Yeah, sounds. It's like I said, aztreasurehunt.org. Uh, if you're into that kind of thing. And do you have the Arizona Identification Council coming up too? They actually do. That's a well. The, the Tri Division Conference is actually going to be in Reno. And that's going to be November third through the sixth. Uh, you can go to nsdiai.net for more information about registration. Um, but uh, Jason Cole out there in Nevada is uh, is always a great host. So if you're from you know Arizona, Utah, or Arizona, obviously this is your your division conference. But uh, being in Reno, you know California can definitely make it as well. So anybody out there listening, you can check out the website for a list of lectures and workshops and stuff we always do a pretty good job putting on a good show agreed all right uh i think we should get into the the news of the day no surprise probably to anyone out there listening but the the news you know, this episode is going to be talking about the state of alabama alabama uh, versus benaya dandridge this is an individual that's been in prison for almost 20 years and then uh looks like he's petitioning for relief to to get out uh, now and part of the story is a bad fingerprint ID. Uh, hey, can I back. can I ask you a question here? Sure. Uh, right when you started it off, you said it shouldn't be any surprise to any anybody. Um, I hadn't heard about this case, and and, and I know you're going to get into how how you know how it became a topic. But right. did you did you already know about this case? Was this did I, did did I miss something? In the last couple well, of weeks? Um, it hit the news um, you know a week or so ago. I saw it come up on. Uh, clpex.com on the message boards and uh, also saw it come out through the email servers with uh, Michelle Triplett and Sandy Siegel they both have you know big email groups and saw it come up mentioned there so first it came out just the basics of the story and the first comments I saw related to this this thing in the article which who knows where this actually this term actually came from but it was that there was less than one in a million chance to see the similarities between these two exemplars that were being compared from non-related people. And I, I didn't quite understand what that meant, and it was just kind of a throwaway thing in the newspaper article. And then um, after kind of wondering what that all meant, uh, just a day or two later, then this whole um, petition came out online uh, that tells a whole lot more detail the story about the bad ID and its history uh, of the case for the past almost 20 years. Okay, I see. Because I, I saw a blurb in the paper in two or, or some kind of thing about it, but I hadn't seen the petition or any of the background information. Okay, so, all right. It's making a little more sense. Okay. Let's kind of first give a little background of, of what happened. Back in 1995, the Mr. Dandridge here was indicted for capital murder. In, uh, in 1994, uh, this guy, Riley Manning Jr., found his father, uh, Riley Manning Sr., uh, who was 71 years old, uh, beaten and strangled uh, in his apartment. Checked his pulse, realized his father was dead, called the police, and uh, saw a bunch of stuff was missing. So, so the police went after a guy, a suspect came up named David Suddeth. There, as police were looking for him. They also uh, picked up uh, Mr. Dandridge for uh, for the homicide. They were both tried. Suddeth you know, basically said that this guy Dandridge was there with me and we killed him together. D- 
Gingrich insisted that he wasn't there. And then a fingerprint in blood on the headboard of the bed uh, was found and identified by uh, someone with the Alabama Bureau of Identification, uh, sorry, Investigation, uh, identified it to Dandridge. And uh, he was convicted. Also part of that uh, that trial was an informant from, uh, from the jail uh, that testified that he heard Dandridge basically admit to to also you know, participating in this homicide. Glenn, anything else to add so far in the story? Uh, yeah, but if if I can... Yeah, I, go ahead. I, I think initially, I mean, I, I just read it. I, initially, they were looking at this guy, Suddeth, and when they picked him up, he's like, well, okay, yeah, you got me. Um, but then because of the fingerprint identification, and that had already been made because of the identification, and now, now Dandridge was implicated in this too. So they had actually arrested him. And then Suddeth went, why is this guy here? I, he, didn't do, he didn't have anything to do with it. I, it was me. I, I did it. This guy was not at the scene. And they ignored, ignored those statements. And then eventually his defense attorney told him, shut up. Um, you might be able to, you know, the, in, in the very next, in the very next statements, Suddeth changed his statement and said, oh yeah, 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 this guy was involved. He was there with me now. So he had kind of changed his story once Suddeth learned that there was an identification to Dandridge. So, uh, so the, the other guy, the, the jailhouse informant was one, uh, Jimmy Hill. Uh, Jimmy Hill, uh, testified that, uh, you know, he had heard these statements uh, from Dandridge in, in jail, saying that, you know, he, he was also there, uh, testified to it in court, and was asked if uh, he'd been promised anything by the police or the sheriff or the district attorney's office in exchange for his testimony. He said no. On cross-examination, the defense established that Mr. Hill uh, had been convicted of 23 prior felonies and because of a pending just first-degree theft charge, uh, was facing a life sentence. And after testifying that this guy was, you know, in, he had overheard this guy was involved in the murder, uh, got that life sentence reduced to probation. Um, so, I mean, already at the very beginning... It's not good. Yeah, we're, we're seeing some, some red flags going up. Oh my God! That this this may be going totally sideways. So the next little part of the story is in in the trial, defense gets fingerprint expert to come in, a guy named Mervyn Smith, who is a retired FBI examiner. And uh, Mervyn Smith testifies that the pr- fingerprint did not come from Dandridge. That he got some similar four or five points. And a similar whirl pattern, which they misspelled whirl, but okay, whatever, that's fine. Um, that they were not the same. And then he also testified that he found at least that many, four or five matching points between the bloody fingerprint on the headboard and the fingerprints of Riley Manning Jr., the victim's son, who came in, found his dad, checked for a pulse, and probably got blood on his hand uh, in doing that. So... I mean, in trial, you have a conflicting expert retired from the FBI saying this is not an ID. This is not a match uh, to the defendant. Right. And if I recall from the uh, from this um, document, the <laughs> it noted that the prosecutor called the defense expert 
a prostitute, quote-unquote prostitute, during his closing arguments multiple times. <sighs> oh, man. Okay, so... Right, then, because, he, then, because he dared to challenge the, right. the prosecution's evidence. Right. So then the, the appeals begin. Shortly after, it's not even very long after the, he's convicted uh, of this homicide, both testimonies against him change. The guy who actually said, yeah, yeah, you got me. He changed his story back to, no, oh, seriously, I did this by myself. He was This guy was not there. And the uh, jailhouse informant changes his story and says, no, I, I really just made that up so I could get a better sentence. This, this, he, I, he didn't actually uh, say anything, and I didn't overhear him say anything about this murder. Uh, over and over again, on appeal with this new information, he keeps getting denied an appeal, and the judge keeps coming back to, it doesn't matter, we got your fingerprint. Hey, you know, it just as an aside, this is one of the things that, you know, Lisa Steele, uh, some of you know you guys know Lisa Steele, she's an attorney, sometimes listens to the show. Uh, she's an appellate attorney out in Massachusetts. Um, you know, it's one of the things that she talks about, that once there's this conviction and you're now in the system and being convicted – it's really tough getting people to to hear your case and your petition and get them to realize, you know, it, you know, there's other evidence. It it becomes such a very different burden that has been shifted, and I I just you know I really felt for the appellate process and those that go through that who really have been convicted who were innocent. How how difficult that must be at that point because now that you are in the system and convicted you have no rights you have no you know usually have no money and you are just living on the prayers and charity and and like you said a judge's whim in these cases and that must be just so terribly frustrating for some of those individuals oh totally like lisa Steele said so many times it's just so hard to 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 walk through that appeal process uh, because like sometimes you can just get things denied on a procedural basis, even though everything is totally clear that, that you should be out. And it, yeah, that's just got to be completely frustrating and crazy. Yeah. Then, uh, so last year, story kind of continues on to 2014, where um, the defense contacts Ron Smith and Associates, uh, Matt Marvin and, and John Bird of Ron Smith and Associates, compared the fingerprints and determined that they did not come from the defendant. Uh, they went further on and said that they were likely from the uh, the victim's son in this case uh, and not from the guy that's been in prison for 20 years. Uh, again, the, and this is just coming out now. Uh, when that all work was done in 2014, it just again speaks to how slow this whole process moves. Yes, yes. Uh, so a, a few things also then come out of this paper. Uh, they, uh, obviously, they, you know, no big surprise, they mentioned the Mayfield case and the uh, the bad ID that came out of there. Um, but then they get a little specific with the fingerprint. Uh, I know some people that have reached out that are trying to get fingerprint field, a copy of these images, so we can you know, just kind of see what, we're, what, what they're talking about, what they're dealing with. Uh, but the description in here that, you know, the guys from Ron Smith and Associates talk about was basically that these points of similarity occur around a delta. And what we know now, basically, versus what 
we knew back then. And I think that's a big part of the appellate process is you have to demonstrate that there's this like new information that's coming out now that we just had no idea about back in, in 94, 95, 96. That, so uh, what we know now is that points around a delta are less specific. Glenn, uh, your uh, thesis gets quoted, I think. Um, so also part of this is coming from uh, Carrie Hall. She wrote an email out uh, recommending that we talk about the, you know, this all this week. And she says that, uh, in her looking through, she says she found five references to your uh, to your thesis paper. Yeah, yeah. I, I, having read that document, I, I saw a couple of references to my thesis work as well. So uh, then also saying, because it's in this pattern force area, the minutiae are less specific. Essentially, in order to kind of reach the same level that we usually use to reach an identification, when you're around a delta, basically you need a little bit more than you would normally need if you're in a more specific area, maybe towards the tip or uh, above the core, stuff like that. Correct. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, but one of the first things that strikes me is that this isn't just that the features relied upon had low specificity, is that the original original examiner had to have missed differences in order for the consultants both on both the original defense and then later Ron Smith and Associates, there have to be clear differences in there that were missed or essentially misattributed to distortion or something like that. I mean, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, what the, again, it, this may just be kind of the defense tactic, what they have to do to make it work in the legal setting. But what yes. they emphasized was that the, the also the difference was back then it was just a magnifying glass and now it's these super fancy computers that can blow things up and make things really clear and enhanced. Yes. So, yes. you know, I, I, I'm not sure. Again, we, until we see the print, we don't really have a good idea of uh, if that's the case or how, how much the computers helped out in that process. Right. Uh, but, you know, that, that because, may have gone into it. Because the original defense expert probably didn't have those computers and was still able to say this is not a match. Um, the FBI has all the, the latest and newest and fanciest uh, enhancement computer stuff. Yeah, well, <laughs> no. And and I thought he was retired at the time. He was retired right. FBI you're, you're, at the time? You're right. I was just making right. a joke. Just making oh, I see. All right. All right. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, because I think in Carrie's email, one of the things that she was uh, concerned about was it seemed like they were citing certain things from the thesis or using the thesis in a strange way to make some points and I wasn't necessarily making in the thesis and I and I, I I could see where she's coming from but that was exactly my interpretation Eric was this was no longer a matter of right or wrong here that the original examiner was wrong and the defense expert and RSNA were right that it was no longer that issue it was no, no, we need to leverage everything we can to show how the profession has evolved and attitudes have evolved, and we will say whatever we need to to make that argument. Right. Um, and, and then find any source that talks about any of these things uh, to, to cite and to at least continue to build that argument. I, I kind of felt the same way, that, that this was basically all defense has to do uh, to, to try to fight this case. 
And and um, from what I've read, you know, over the past few years, that it really does seem to be the case where it's not good enough to just show that the uh, the expert was wrong initially. Like, there's even cases where the expert that were that contributed to this conviction has come back before the court and said, "I was wrong previously. I now have this opinion, it's completely opposite from my previous opinion." And the court's like, "Not good enough. Like, it, that doesn't matter. That it does have to be this level of there's something new. That you know, and somehow a new decision doesn't matter. It's just." new technology or new application of things, new understandings. Uh, that's what seems to be required in, in a lot of these cases for the appeals process to actually work right. Right. And so the defense in the document talked about using these computers and enhancement tools and um, being more aware of pattern-forced areas and close non-matches and um, you know documentation throughout the analysis and comparison phase and all these various things that yes my thesis does talk about those but it basically said that if you don't do those things those are bad practices and we didn't know that you know uh, 10 years ago and now we do know this and so that's why this case needs to be reinvestigated I, I kind of felt I mean I think Carrie's right in this way is that yeah they might have been uh, the, the heart's in the right place. Their citations to my research might have been exaggerated a little bit, um, but at the same time, I I don't know what other recourse they have, like you said, to to make it seem as if the world has changed dramatically in the last ten years of of those examinations. But yet, I don't know that they ever did in the in this aspect, or it was necessary in this aspect to detect this error since it was detected 10 years ago. Well, right. Like originally, like 20 years ago, it was the error. Was, was, it, was it 20? Oh my God. It was 20. 20. I'm 20 sorry. Years, yeah. Sorry. 20 years ago. Mama. Wow. 20, and, yes. and it was, that's the thing is it was, it was found back then. And I, I can't imagine the, the defense expert. Was it Smith? I think it was Smith. Yes. The, the retired FBI guy, you know, going down to Alabama, testifying, no, no, this is wrong. And then basically, I'm not sure where he's at now, but having this just be out there for this long of, you know, you know this this didn't match and and this guy still got convicted. Well, see, now there, there that was one of the little sticking points I had because the, the original document never said that Smith, the FBI guy, said that they were excluded. He just said the points didn't match. Um, and I took that to mean it, and given the language back then, if it was FBI, it would have been non-ident. If he didn't identify it, he would have said it's a non-ident. They wouldn't have said an exclusion back then. They would have been right. strictly approach one and would have said ident or non-ident and not necessarily clarifying the exclusion position. So that definitely has changed. And I don't know how, you know, without having seen his transcripts, I don't know how that was articulated to the court or how convincing that was or how strong that was other than I can't identify this because there are points here that don't match. Right. I, I, what I didn't catch here, and, and this, I guess the impression I get is that he's still actually in prison and this is just kind of the, the next step of the appeals process. So, am I reading this right? Yeah, this is the petition, right. Right. So, oh my goodness. Well, the, I, I, I'm hopeful that RSNA 
will be able to help get to the next step. Um, and I'm sure that they'll take proper steps to making that happen and if this is something where the community of examiners would need to you know examine these images and help out i imagine there'd be a number of people willing to you know step up examine them and offer an opinion but i would also hope that alabama takes some responsibility alabama bureau of investigation i'll step forward and take some responsibility here as well um this is not going to go well for them if they maintain this decision and if they right. don't have some ownership in this. Right. So I, I looked up the uh, the examiner that's listed here as making that original determination back in 95 or 96, whenever it was made. Uh, yep. and, and she's at least currently not a member of the IAI. So I'm not sure if she's retired now. I mean, it's been 20 years, so I, I would assume so. And then hopefully the DA's office can can get on the same page and and you know join in the defense on this yes. request for uh, this this petition because uh, that's that's you know, probably be the quickest way out uh, is if, if if someone from the prosecution you know does the mea culpa and um, and then joins in with as fast as possible working this all out uh, so. Unless there's some other information, but it really seems like his conviction was based on the testimony of these two people and the fingerprint. And since now all three have been shown to be false, I mean, there's nothing left. This, <laughs> unless there's something else that, that I'm not aware of. Again, this is just reading the defense's petition so far. So this is very much their side of the story, but it does seem like th- this is something that needs to be fixed and taken care of. Yeah, I I have a feeling this is not going to go well. <laughs> I I have a feeling that people are going to hunker down with their position, and this is not going to go well. I'm right. just 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 a hunch. Okay, just I mean, a hunch. It has happened in some cases where you know this attorney has basically gone back and and joined in with the defense. So uh, it, it's not unheard of. So right. I mean, we can always hope for the best. So uh, a few things, um, now that kind of the story's out, a few things that, that really struck me from reading this. The, the first being just how careful we have to be around the Delta. You know, uh, Penny Deccant uh, gave a, a little short presentation uh, about this at the last conference that, uh, that went really well, uh, just showing how similar things can get in this pattern forced area. Lots of minutia, and uh, if you get down to that you know, four to eight minutia range, you know, you can find stuff that matches up as similar. Uh, usually it takes searching through a big database to find something. In this case, uh, it was a coincidence between the victim's son and uh, this random guy that, that did at least know the family but wasn't related. Even still, with uh, how often we use APHIS now and how big the APHIS databases are, it's it's just something we need to be aware of and be extra careful with because that, that potential for a bad ID goes so far up with uh, with stuff around the Delta. We got papers from um, Cedric that demonstrates this, you know, basically mathematically. That's uh, from Cedric Newman, and uh, at least in my class, you know, that's that's the exer- the exercise with minutia around the Delta is the one where in this training environment uh, it produces the most uh, erroneous identifications. Yep, I, no doubt. The all the research shows that is a problem area, and examiners 
have the potential to be mistaken when presented with a large number of apparently matching features from that area. The next thing that, that really strikes me is, uh, again, this is like 96 when the trial was going down, but the prosecution's witness, uh, the, the fingerprint expert's testimony, was that fingerprint identification is an exact science and immune from error because no individuals have the same fingerprint. Right. Uh, essentially, 100% certain exclusion of all others is you know, what you can read into it in slightly different language. And they go on in this petition for a while showing you know, how how these concepts have been rejected and how no one testifies that way anymore and it's been recommended that we don't testify this way anymore. Again, just another layer here uh, showing how that is an overstatement of our decisions and how it could contribute, at least partially, uh, to something bad like this happening. The third thing that really struck me was if you ever have a defense expert or some other person in the community, like a retired FBI, that at least you know qualifies in my book as somebody to listen to and consider. But if someone ever says, hey, I came to the opposite conclusion, I uh, excluded or had a non-ident in this case, and you identified it, that is a big red flag to stop and look back at what you compared and then ask them to say, okay, what are you seeing that, that is leading you to that decision that is opposite of mine? Uh, it was a failure here in this case and was the you know big failure uh, in the Brandon Mayfield case where the FBI didn't listen to the Spanish National Police saying the opposite decision. Uh, and I think this just reiterates that whole concept is don't just be like, nope, <laughs> he's just the defense expert. Actually, you know, try to seek out, well, why do you think that? Let's, you know, show me what you're seeing. And it may not necessarily change your mind, but uh, I, I, that's just such an important process, uh, I think, in our field, is that communication, that talking out uh, of your opinion to either reinforce uh, where you're standing on or to, you know, sh sh to see uh, someone else's viewpoint on this comparison. Yeah, that can be a little difficult in a defense case because if you're, you know, if you're a defense expert, you, you won't have an opportunity to talk to the prosecution's expert usually and vice versa. Um, so I think the practical thing to do here is to explain to the prosecutor that you would like him to discover the defense witnesses notes and get all of that and the presentation that he or she plans to present at court and the basis for their conclusion and basically all the same things that we're expected to provide to defense to review make sure that those things get asked for from the defense expert and then make sure you review them to see where they you know what their what the basis of their opinion is totally so the last little thought that, that came to me from this whole situation, okay, so this is, this is my viewpoint. Uh, I think that while the, the forensic examiner, uh, the error contributed to this whole situation, I'm personally going to put more of the blame on the court system, on the legal system, 
uh, for this miscarriage of justice. You know, if if the defense expert way back in 96 had said, yep, I agree too, and that it was an ID, then okay, it's, you know, forensics fault. But that wasn't the case. They had back in the original trial uh, someone coming forward with the basically the correct decision uh, or correct opinion uh, in this case. And then to go all these years not paying attention to all of the evidence going away and coming back to insisting, oh, no, no, we'll still keep him in prison because we have this fingerprint ID, basically totally ignoring that that was in question too. Uh, I'm going to, while I do recognize the fault that forensics did play in it, I'm going to put more of the blame on the legal community. You know, I, I, I kind of see where you're coming from. I, I, I actually put a lot of blame on a lot of people in this. Uh, the, the initial <laughs> examiner for sure, the court system, this prosecutor sounds like just a dick. I mean, you know, the just judge calling, too. Well, the judge too. Yeah, absolutely. The judge too. Um, and you know, the investigators in this case, because you know, they really, and you know, this maybe is somewhat the fault of forensics, but they really built a case around this evidence. I mean, they, you know, they, they truly made what did not fit, try to fit over and over and over and then getting the jailhouse snitch and all these other things. And this all just, like you said, it smacks of the entire system. Um, and I, I, I do see a, a lot of people who are at fault uh, in in this, as it, if it does in fact turn out to be as we would expect, you know, just um, right an, an error and an innocent uh, was convicted. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it really is just sad that it's gone on for so long. It, that, that's what I guess I keep coming back to is as the, the just the most amazing and, and saddest part of it. Is yeah. that it's been going on for this long, uh, without it coming back to another person to look at it, or without uh, the judge taking into consideration all the other evidence going away, but this fingerprint ID that had an FBI examiner disagree with as well. It, it, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where I just shake my head and, and, and almost can't believe it. Yeah, um, it, it it is like you said, really unfortunate. And, you know, I give a lot of credit to the defense attorney in this case who for all these years worked this pro bono. Um, you know, the petition talked about that, and I, again, appreciate that. And, you know, these are the types of cases that I I have taken pro bono as well to try to help when you can really see that a miscarriage of justice, you know, has occurred. And, uh, well, and, and hats off to Ron Smith and Associates for getting involved as well. Oh, absolutely. Because uh, without that, you know, basically he would still have no chance. And at least with this, you know, it seems like there is that chance. Yeah. All right, Glenn, um, let's uh, let's close this out. We you know, really want to encourage people to, to write in uh, on this one. If you have any other takes on this that we didn't hit on, um, uh, we ended up rambling a lot longer than I thought we were, but... Uh, um, you know, please write in to us, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. So before we end the episode, Glenn, anything you want to mention? Uh, you know, we're still uh, still looking for people to sign up for the class, uh, class exclusion class, sufficiency class. We've got spots open in Las Vegas, 
uh, in a couple of weeks. I think that's the first week in November, and nice. I think we're still we're still looking at uh, class down in Clearwater, Florida, Largo, Florida area. Um, and I think we still have spots open for that. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com uh, to find out more about those training courses and opportunities. All right. Well, I already mentioned the email addresses. Again, please write in. Uh, you can listen to us every week on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or on iTunes. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Music provided on this podcast by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com.